Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about trade policy transitions. So right now, one cannot have failed to notice the Trump administration is on the way out and the Biden administration is on the way in. We're going to be joined by a very special guest, someone who's been a big part of an earlier transition. My name is Susan Schwab. I am affiliated with the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, and I am a strategic advisor at the law firm of Mayor Brown. I left government in 2009. Uh, I was in and out of government all my career. My last job was as United States Trade Representative. My first job was as a baby agricultural negotiator at the predecessor of USTR. We wanted to talk about what happens when there is a transition between administrations. Um, and, And so listeners might have seen that a little while ago, the Biden administration named people to its transition teams. We were excited to see some Trade Talks guests on there. We had Kathleen Clausen, Mark Wu, Jay Shamba. Woo! <laughs> Great. But we wanted to know exactly what they are doing. What are those teams doing right now? They will be writing policy papers. They will be writing, this is what you do on the first day, the first hundred days, the first year. Now, these papers may or may not be read, but they are laying out policy documents, policy approaches. The second thing that they probably are doing uh, is looking at institutional issues, budget issues. Uh, They're looking at key personnel issues, personnel positions. So, for example, at USTR, one of the most important characteristics of USTR is that there are very few political positions. Most of the positions at USTR are career positions. And it's a very, very small agency, tiny agency. I would argue the best bang for the buck for the U.S. taxpayer in the entire U.S. uh, government. But very, very few, maybe 10% of the positions are political. So among those very few political positions, some, including the actual U.S. trade representative, they need to be approved by the Senate before they can actually start working. Others don't, and so they can go in straight away. So the two most important people, for example, who will go into USTR after January 20, I would argue, is the USTR designee's chief of staff and the general counsel. And the general counsel, happily at this point, is not a Senate-confirmed position. Every once in a while, members of Congress say, oh, we need to elevate the position by making them Senate-confirmed. And I want to go, no, don't do that. You need some senior positions at USTR who can show up and show up early. Some people forget You know, Ambassador Lighthizer wasn't confirmed until May. His deputies weren't confirmed until 2018. So you need to have some political appointees in the building to start acting as liaisons between the career team and the White House, between the career team and the Hill, and so on. Susan was USTR during a Republican administration for President George W. Bush. 
and she handed over to the Obama administration, to USTR Ron Kirk. We asked what it was like. When Ron Kirk was named USTR, I think I was the first one to call and congratulate him. At least that's what he tells me. And we had a nice chat. Long before he came into the building, there was a a transition team that came into the building. That particular transition team was a little less interested in our, say, policy recommendations and some of the warnings we had for them than we thought they should have been. Their attitude generally was, well, the deals that you didn't close, read the Doha round, you didn't close them because nobody likes your guy and we're going to be able to get them closed because everybody likes our guy who's coming in. My warning to Ambassador Kirk was, this Doha thing is a disaster and isn't going to go anywhere. And they found that out. But what you do when you are the outgoing, one, you hope to leave the place in better shape than you found it. And if you can, you try to lay the table to help your successor. So the kinds of things that we did in advance of the Obama folks coming in, one, we hoped we had made it clear that the Doha round wasn't going anywhere so they didn't have to go through some of the pain that we had to go through the last couple of years. We had three free trade agreements uh, that we had negotiated that we thought were pretty good that Nancy Pelosi had decided she didn't want going through the House of Representatives. Uh, those were the ones with uh, with uh, Korea and Colombia and Panama. I don't think the incoming Obama administration considered them gifts, but eventually managed to do some tinkering and got them got them through, and that was a good thing. Uh, the other thing we did was we launched the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, negotiation. And in that case, I'm not sure they thanked us either, but we set a deadline, a two-year deadline, for the new administration to say yes or no, they were going to go ahead with it or not go ahead with it. Thinking about what a Biden administration might inherit, right now there, there aren't yet any new market opening trade agreements wrapped up in a bow, but I suppose it would inherit those fish subsidy talks as well as the U.S.-U.K. and U.S.-Kenya negotiations. The other thing a new administration inherits is disputes. One Susan had to deal with was a very long-running fight over a European ban on American exports of hormone-treated beef. She tried to give her successor leverage. We made a deliberate decision in the late summer, early fall of 2008, as I recall, that we needed to get this particular dispute unstuck, uh, that this dispute had been ongoing for a decade, uh, pretty close to, as I recall, and that the retaliation, this was WTO consistent retaliation that was in place, and everyone had gotten used to it. Everyone was used to paying the tariffs. And in my experience, if tariffs are sitting there long enough, everyone gets used to it. And the tariffs, tariffs, that are threatened are much more valuable than tariffs that are in place. And so we did a we did a federal register notice, we did hearings. We discovered that it is much harder than any of us thought to find potential retaliation targets because you know, there are lots of US interests associated with imports. 
but we found one for every one of, nope, we found one for 26 out of 27 EU member states. We didn't have one for the UK because they had not been advocates of blocking the US beef, but everybody else was. So we found one for France and one for Germany. And anyway, we found one for everybody else. And we put out a notice saying on such and such a date, the retaliation list was going to change to these items. And all of a sudden you had a new set of constituencies on both sides of the Atlantic that had an interest in this dispute being resolved. And we set a date that was after we left to enable the new administration to try to cut the deal that we were able to cut. And that, in fact, they were able to do. So one of the first deals Ron Kirk was able to do was to resolve at least temporarily that dispute with the EU because of the retaliation, uh, the new retaliation that gave them leverage. Do you see any parallels with with what is happening today? In the case of the current administration, you can look at things like the tariffs that this administration will be leaving behind, whether steel tariffs or the U.S.-China trade war tariffs. And you can either look at it as a problem or as an opportunity. Now, I don't have to tell you or Chad that trade negotiators are not classical economists. And most trade negotiators coming in will look at those tariffs as leverage. That may be trade distorting leverage, but it's leverage. And there are legitimate problems that generated those tariffs. The approach that was used was not necessarily the approach that the rest of us would have used, but the tariffs are sitting there. So you know, the incoming team can decide what they want to do with it. And I'm sure Ambassador Lighthizer would be happy to offer his advice. How did the the dynamics of a transition affect your negotiating leverage before the, the, the transition has actually happened? Did trading partners start taking you less seriously because they think the next USTR might not be so tough? It kind of depends on who's coming in behind you. Right. So if your foreign counterparts think they can get a better deal from whoever's coming in behind you, then they're likely to treat you like a lame duck earlier. If they think that they can do the deal with you and there might be a problem with the folks coming in behind you, they'll try to do the deal with you. If there are some deadlines that are out there that have nothing to do with you or the team coming in, for example, trade promotion authority expiring? Or do you really want to leave these tariffs in place for another six months until a new USTR comes in and the team gets on the ground? And, you know, so so if we can resolve this dispute, why don't we resolve this dispute? Because we just don't want these tariffs sitting out there for another six months because of the nature of transitions. So just just for listeners, um, in the case of of the Biden administration, trade promotion authority is going to expire in July of next year. This is this piece of legislation that makes it relatively easy to get trade deals through Congress. Uh, That means that realistically, you have to submit a deal to Congress by April. Okay, so my question is, can the outgoing USTR coordinate 
with with the incoming one, you know, sort of get together and and say it would be really helpful if if you also sounded tough on this particular issue. No, if you're if you are the incoming, you have to really go out of your way not to act as though you presume the Senate is going to confirm you. So if you are the incoming, in some cases, the administration will not let you be in the building. But but above all, you cannot be doing anything that would suggest that you believe that your confirmation is guaranteed, uh, because it isn't. So no, there's not, there, there can be a dialogue, easily a dialogue between the incoming and the outgoing USTR or the incoming and outgoing deputies or the general counsel. You know, we spent as much time as they were willing to listen, explaining what had happened, what we thought the best angles were, why we had done this, that, and the other. What they did with it, who knows? Uh, in some cases we found out, in some cases they, they really didn't care. Uh, in many cases, I think a lot of administrations, and this is more the landing teams, this is more the uh, the first teams that come in generally think they know better. And then as you have the next layers of people who come in who are going to actually have to make policy, they tend to be much more curious and much more interested in what happened before they got there because they're going to have to live with it. Anyway, so... One of the things that I think is worth mentioning is the extent to which USTR in particular, but but also Treasury, state, other agencies, but USTR in particular, uh, the former USTRs are very close, regardless of what party. And uh, we started a, a tradition, I guess when Ron Kirk came in, of making sure that when a new USTR comes in, that the former's take them out to uh, take them out to dinner. And you probably know, you know, the, the formers periodically do programs at different, you know, at CSIS and, and uh, WIDA and, and other trade groups around town. But we also get together periodically because we genuinely like each other and shared, <laughs> shared a foxhole, albeit at different times. One of our recent episodes, uh, we, we titled it, Can Biden Make Trade Boring Again? So how boring do you think things are going to get on trade? The incoming administration uh, has signaled that trade is not likely to be a priority. I think they're going to find that trade is going to come to them, even if they don't necessarily want to go to trade. That's what happened to uh, President Obama. I think it will happen to President-elect Biden and, and his folks as well. But I think that trade and foreign policy will become more enmeshed in the coming administration. So, so different administrations will, will look at trade differently. One could almost argue that for President Trump, trade has been foreign policy as opposed to the other way around. My last question is, in all of the discussions about the transition and what's about to happen, what do you think that people are missing? So I can think, you know, two things off the top of my head, three things off the top of my head. One, they're missing all of the things that the USTR and others inherit that are action-forcing events. So we know about, the, you know, the steel tariffs, the China war tariffs the new team could come in and inherit 
a finalized, an initialed, a not quite ready US-UK deal. Could happen. What are they going to do with it? Right? Are they going to close it before April? Initial it before April? Are they going to get it done? Maybe not. But that is a very big decision. A go-no-go decision is a very, very fundamental foreign policy decision in that case. Because you're not going to be able to turn that one around after July 1, 2021. So one what comes at you that you have no control over? Uh, and of course, you've got all these, <laughs> you have every member, virtually every member of the G20 in violation of its WTO obligations at this point, like everybody, whether they launched a trade action or they responded to a trade action, everyone's in violation. So is someone going to unscramble those eggs? I mean, what's going to happen at the WTO? And of course, the new USTR is going to inherit the pellet body issues and so on and so forth. So that's one. Two, people don't realize that when the president of the United States goes to meetings and interacts with his counterparts, G20 meetings, well, that won't happen for a while, but as soon as that starts happening, G20 meetings, G7 meetings, showing up at an ASEAN meeting, an APEC meeting, your counterparts are out there talking about trade and your counterparts are approaching you about trade. You may not want to talk about trade, but they want to talk about trade. So if it's their priority, what are you going to do? Say, I'm not going to do trade for the next two or three years. So you can't underestimate what happens when Prime Minister Modi wants to talk to you about trade or Xi Jinping wants to talk to you about trade or Angela Merkel wants to talk to you about trade because it happens. And then you have to decide what you're going to do. And then the third thing that people don't necessarily think about is what's happening on the Hill? And what happens if the Congress decides it wants to start moving its own China legislation? I don't know. So there we are. Three examples. Okay, my last question. Over the next few weeks, what are you going to be watching out for? So I was interested to see who was in the transition teams. It, it, it's a group of people, I would agree with some of them, would not agree with others. But it is, a, it is a serious group of people. It is a knowledgeable group of people, for the most part. Then obviously, who is picked as USTR and when is that person picked? Because usually the USTR is one of the last ones named. So that's kind of happens. Uh, USTR is one of the last ones named. And who is that person? I wouldn't be surprised if that is a politician this time. But is this a politician to check a box or is this a politician to get some trade-related things done? Because you need somebody who's really politically savvy to get some trade-related things done. So that'll be very interesting. Or maybe not. Maybe, it's a, maybe it is somebody who has a real solid trade background. I don't know. That'll be very interesting. Are the individuals in the White House, so now I'm thinking National Economic Council, National Security Council, uh, keep in mind, they get there first. And there's a lot of stuff that starts churning. Trade-related things could start churning, uh, including you know, responses to what comes at them, uh, out of the White House uh, long before people get confirmed and you start filling out your political positions in the agencies. So 
some of that will be interesting to watch. Now, obviously, there is still some time between now and the 20th of January. So so who knows? Maybe there are some more surprises to come out of the USTR. Just just to know it would be fine if there were none. I would be I would be totally fine with that. And on that note, I think we are going to wrap up. Although if you are interested in hearing about how Susan became USTR, do listen right at the end. We have a nugget for you. A huge thanks to Susan Schwab, currently at the University of Maryland, and Mayor Brown, and the former U.S. Trade Representative. We are so grateful to her for for finally coming on and sharing her insights. There was a lot of arm twisting. We've been wanting to have her on for a really, really long time. So Trade Talks listeners, I think we're very, very lucky. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown. And I'm at Samaya Keynes. And we are on at trade underscore underscore talks. That is not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Okay, so now for the bonus bit, because you never know, there might be some trade talks listeners out there who themselves are hoping to nab the USTR job. And so a question is, might Susan be an example to follow? So we asked Susan how she got the job. I was deputy USTR, uh, President Bush it was my first time I met President Bush. It was the first time I briefed President Bush. It was on Canadian lumber. Uh, Canadian lumber had been considered the albatross or one of two or three albatrosses in the trade policy world up to that point. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I've got to brief the President of the United States on this issue. And I didn't know that not only was he interested in Canadian lumber, but he had already decided that he was going to move Rob Portman over to OMB. And this was also my job interview for USTR. And luckily, I did not know that. But I briefed the president. And the president, he was just such a wonderful, President Bush was such a wonderful boss because you knew exactly what was expected of you. So I briefed him and he said, okay, Susan, here's the deal. I'm I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say it that way. I am tired of every time I meet with a Canadian prime minister having to talk about softwood lumber. We've got such important issues between the United States and Canada. It would be really nice to have a meeting with a Canadian prime minister and not have that be the first topic that the Canadian prime minister has to talk about. So Susan, your job is to fix this. And I don't care how you fix it, but you will fix it. And it was very politically iffy on the U.S. side, but that meant that some of his top political folks, Karl Rove, Barry Jackson, and others, also knew that they were going to help me on the political side get it done. And so it, it ultimately became a team effort on our side. And on the Canadian side, Steve Harper and his Minister for Trade and Industry, David Emerson, they wanted to get it done. And we got it done by April. And then I got the job. And then I got the job. Okay, I think the takeaway here is find a really tedious dispute over subsidies to Canadian loggers that the president just keeps on getting pestered about, solve it, and bingo. Chad, do you have any really, really boring disputes you think you could solve? I I, I guess I, I Chinese... 
subsidies is a little one. I, I think I could. I think I could solve if okay, I were no, just no, given no, the no, chance. Chad, that's not anywhere near boring enough, and also completely <laughs> unsolvable. You're going to need to work on your pitch. I'm that was sorry. the. That was the point. No, no, <laughs> you're out. I'm picking someone else. Susan, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.